This Thacker Slate podcast is hosted by Connie Thacker and Allison Slate, two experienced attorneys who believe honesty, transparency, and knowledge are key to achieving the best legal outcomes. A variety of topics, particularly those related to sensitive family law matters, are candidly covered by Connie and Allison in a way that's refreshing, timely, and practical for listeners. Allison and I are here today with Randy Flood and Ben Burgess from Fountain Hill, and we're going to be talking about resistance, refusal dynamics, uh, parental alienation, some issues associated with domestic violence, and how all those are impacted in the family law system and in the court system. So good morning, you guys, and just take a second to introduce yourselves and let everybody know who you are and that we're all here together, and we'll get started on informing the public on those areas. Good morning, Allison and Connie. I'm Randy Flood. I'm a psychologist. I've been at Fountain Hill since 2000. I kind of wear two hats. I specialize in working in family court, doing court-related evaluations and providing specialized counseling services for families going through divorce and custody and parenting time battles, parent coordination, parent-child reunification counseling, uh, those kinds of counseling services. And I also um, specialize in men's psychology and have founded the Men's Resource Center of West Michigan and offer evaluation and counseling services for men who struggle with issues of domestic violence, anger management, sexual acting out behavior, or just generally want to get their life back together. Well, thanks. That's so, a lot going on. Yeah. <laughs> ben? Uh, thanks for having us here. Uh, my name is Ben Burgess, like uh, Randy. Uh, I'm with the Fountain Hill Center. I have not been there nearly as long as he has. Uh, I've been there for about a year and a half. Uh, I focus on exclusively issues related to uh, family court uh, evaluations, parent coordination, reunification, uh, mediation, collaborative divorce, uh, those kinds of issues. Um, And we're excited to be here and uh, to be talking about these issues. Well, great. And, and um, I wanted uh, Allison to say a few things, too, in terms of you know what we're going to talk about today and, and really just the kinds of cases that our firm works on are generally high-conflict cases where we have a lot of these uh, issues involved, where we represent both the uh, favored parent and the unfavored parent from different times time to time in all the court systems uh, that we're in. So um, Allison can probably comment a little bit about some of the work that we do and what we've seen over the the last couple of months that we've been in our law firm? Well, I think, you know, with Ben, I have a lot of his work in my cases simply because I have a lot of really high-conflict divorce cases, and it's uh, communication problems, it's um, emotional, physical abuse problems, and so I think that when we're doing uh, some of these high-conflict cases, we've really been looking at parent coordination, and I don't know that that's the right answer, the wrong answer, and maybe you guys can speak to kind of those challenges and complexities that are involved in high-conflict divorce. Well, and I think part of the problem is, too, is that we get these cases when they're on their last leg, so to speak. Uh, everybody's been in conflict. They're difficult, and they're difficult to fix. And so you guys go through that process, and maybe we should start by talking about, you know, what is resistance refusal dynamics, and how does that play into um, families that we see here in Western Michigan and all across the country. Right. Well, one of the things, Ben and I are both uh, evaluators, so we strongly believe in the uh, need for diagnostics in these cases because 
of the complexity of the cases. When you have what we now call resist and refuse dynamics is when a, in parent-child contact problems, when you have children not wanting to be with another parent and they have a favored parent and they're rejecting another one, there are numerous reasons why that can take place. And so we try to evaluate those dynamics. And on one side of the continuum, you can have a child resisting and refusing contact because there's domestic violence, child abuse, child sexual abuse, and they're actually trying to get away from an abusive parent. And in those cases, we call them estrangement cases. Um, and, and, the, and, and Randy, the, the word justified right. is, is important there. And children reject a parent for a good reason. Right. So it's, it's a justified rejection and refusal based on their experience with that parent. And on the other side of the continuum is what we call parental alienation cases, where a child in an unjustified situation is rejecting a parent because they're trying to remain loyal to the favored parent or they're having a reaction to a high conflict and they can't deal with the tension of that high conflict, that tribal atmosphere that high conflict parents create for the child. And so in order to reduce the tension and stress in their life, they choose a favored parent and reject a parent they historically had a decent relationship with. A good enough relationship. Yes. And ambivalence is hard. And, and being in that position is challenging uh, for adults and even more so for children. So it's easier just to pick a side right. and to see things in a black and white way as opposed to seeing all the variability. Right. Do you think it's important for us to really try to figure out what's the cause of the resistance that's going on? I mean, in your evaluations, you look at, you know, what's the cause of the resistance and then how do we, how do we fix the resistance is really right. the second piece. And, and so, I mean, maybe you can speak to how do we figure out what it is? What do we look to? Uh, and what do we do with kids who tell us certain right. things that their impressions are a certain way? And we believe the children. Right. And sometimes that uh, glass that they have on is really not accurate. And sometimes we find that out and sometimes it takes us months, if not years, to work through these cases. So I think if you guys could talk a little bit about what do you look for and why? Do we really need to know why they're not going? Absolutely. It, it, sure, that, that definitely helps us fix whatever's going on or, or try to fix whatever is going on. And the process of trying to figure that out is, is about process. And it, it follows uh, a model wherein we you know, conduct interviews with the parties jointly and separately and with the children. And there may be psychological testing and parent-child observations, collateral interviews, uh, collateral document reviews, uh, a variety of things that help us arrive at a conclusion um, before we we make the determination as to what the problem actually is. And we do that by considering multiple hypotheses. We don't go into it looking for domestic violence or child abuse or parental alienation. We keep all of those options open until we have the data needed to make that determination. And, it, <clears throat> excuse me. and it's important because if you go in to see a mental health 
counselor and you don't know diagnostically what's going on, so many mistakes are made by good intention therapists who are trying to work for the best interest of children. And so it's important to know diagnostically why a child is rejecting or refusing because if you don't know the core and root issue for that rejection, then you're likely to make a lot of mistakes. And then if those mistakes are allowed to marinate for months and years, then it even makes it more difficult to undo it um, later on. So that's why we strongly believe not just because we're evaluators, we have a bias toward evaluations, but we do believe that process of kind of understanding what's going on then can direct judges, attorneys, mental health professionals in a better way to really work for the best interest of the children. How much do psychological evaluations play into this process and, and what are you looking for when you're doing that? The psychological evaluations in in are, are never more than just a component of my overall assessments. So that is one piece of uh, an assessment. It can help, uh, but in and of itself, it's not determinative. It, it doesn't, a, a domestic, or I'm sorry, a psychological evaluation does not tell us if someone has abused their children, does not tell us if they've perpetrated domestic violence, or they're in engaging in alienating behaviors, but it, it does play a part in the overall assessment. We, we typically, I think Ben and I don't see a lot of, as much value in just having a psychological evaluation to evaluate fitness because typically that is more looking at mental health issues. Not that we don't see mental health problems when it comes to parenting fitness, but oftentimes we're seeing other types of situations that's contributing to the problem. So our belief is that the more expansive an evaluation is beyond just looking at psych psychometrics and looking at psychological testing, the more valid and reliable an evaluation is to the courts and attorneys. So we're using various uh, sources of data to arrive at our conclusions. Uh, and a big component in assessing credibility in these cases is uh, document reviews. You know, are there police reports? Are there medical records? Those kinds of things uh, it, that can help uh, help us figure out what's going on. Uh, speaking with people who have insight uh, into the case. Um, always relying on multiple sources of, of data. How long does the process usually take and what are the financial resources required to do one of these evaluations? It depends um, on our availability and the, uh, the family's availability. Sometimes people are traveling from long distances, kids are in school, they have extracurricular activities and athletic events. And so um, we do our best to try to expedite evaluations, um, but we do um, have to work with kids' schedules, parents' work schedules. Um, so my my personal experience is that it takes anywhere from two months to six months, um, depending on the case and how involved it is. And that is for a full custody and parenting time evaluation where you're evaluating the whole family. Just a domestic violence assessment or a psychological assessment is a much more circumscribed evaluation, and that can be done, you know, within weeks, like two to six weeks. 
I, I was going to use uh, a couple months for uh, it, probably the average length of uh, of a custody and parenting time evaluation. What do you guys think about <clears throat> cost? As Allison was asking, you know, I always we we tell our clients, unfortunately. Uh, the legal system is expensive, and you can have about as much justice as you can afford. Uh, so it's not a, a cheap process to go through, and so some families don't have the means to do it, and so uh, the signs and symptoms go untreated. Um, but how much do you think in terms of cost usually do you see to do one of these assessments, particularly if it's taking you know, two months to six months and you're interviewing parents and you're reading data and reports and you know, this stuff isn't inexpensive? It, these are very time-consuming uh, evaluations, and cost is a prohibitive factor for a lot of people. Um, I've always got reduced fee uh, projects going, but but I, I can't do you know an unlimited number. Right. Of those. You can only take so many pro bono cases exactly. a year because, you know, these are um, challenging and usually there's somebody involved in it who's got, you know, they're angry that they're uh, at the sabotaging parent and the sabotaging parent is, you know, always pointing at the other parent and their behavior. Give us some examples, if you would, of what are alienating behaviors? I mean, what, what do you see that um, uh, the favored parent is doing uh, to either the kids or to the unfavored parent that you go, oh, that's that's really, to me, that's an indication of some alienation going on. And I guess with that, I'd want to know too, I mean, is it intentional or do they not even know that they're doing it? Right. Well, just back real quick on the costs, I, I think that, you know, even though it can be expensive, it can be, look at it as an investment because if you're looking at children that are young, if, if the course can get a better idea of an orientation as to what is going on with the family, then the money you spend litigating after that is going to be better money spent and smarter money spent than a case that's just floundering around with a, with a judge not knowing what's going on. So I'll say that as a pitch to the investment aspect of an evaluation. Um, Prolination is a very difficult um, phenomenon to 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 identify and to codify because it's so spurious, it's so mercurial, um, unlike abuse cases sometimes when you have um, substantiated child protection investigations or you got police reports for domestic violence showing injuries, which can be more concrete. So perlination can happen, and you, Allison, you asked, is a parent aware of it? There's topologies of alienators. I think there's alienators that are really pathogenic that are have a mental health diagnosis and they have paranoia and they're narcissistic and they actually believe everything they're saying and they become what we call an, enca an encapsulated delusion. They actually believe someone is dangerous when in fact they aren't. So facts can prove they aren't, but in the alienator's mind, they are. So it's a delusional um, process. And then you have alienators who are just responding to high conflict in their they're vindictive, they're angry, they know it, and they're using the children um, as weapons and they're, it's, it's, it's premeditated, they're aware of it. And then if it's confronted and they're not able to get away with it, the behavior stops. And that's why it's important to identify it. Ben, you wanna speak to the specific ways in which they alienate and we can talk together about that? Maybe the, the easiest one to describe would be the parent 
who openly badmouth the other parent in front of the children. So the children are exposed to those negative comments about the other parent. And those negative comments might be, you know, maybe they're true. Maybe the other parent did do that, but maybe they're false. Maybe they're exaggerated. But regardless, they're being exposed to things that kids don't need to be exposed to. So ver- verbal abuse is one, and or bad mouthing. Another one might be um, over booking the children's schedule. So if you got a child who's really interested in soccer or something like that, you're you're the favored parent, and you can just book multiple tournaments, multiple teams. Um, during the marriage, you tried to moderate that and try to create balance for the child's life. Now you're going to make this you know, campaign that my child is so, so good at soccer and so interested. If you don't support these tournaments, you're a bad parent. So then a mom or dad says, it's my weekend and we're going to a family reunion and we can't do that tournament. Then all of a sudden, the parent who's not allowing that child to go to every soccer tournament out of state throughout the country is now deemed a bad parent. And now the child believes that and the favored parent is milking it. That would be another strategy. Yeah, you see those kind of a lot that we do in our cases. I mean, we've seen some situations where the kids can tell you all about the court dates and when mom and dad are having hearings. And we've had even some people say things that uh, parents have read pleadings to the children and just, you know, acted inappropriately with the children. Or we see issues where uh, one parent won't let the other parent even wash their clothing. They're, the kids are required to bring it all back because the other parent's just inadequate in their mind and can't do a lot of things for the kids. And so that sends a message, whether expressed or implied, to the children that the, you know their other parent isn't competent to, to parent them. And then it just continues with that process. And then you get into these constant uh, continuums of uh, influencing the children, probably in a negative way. So those are some examples of what are alienating behaviors. Let's talk a little bit about estrangement and what that is and what you see when you're looking for that. And, and then let's sort of go into an arena and talk about then what do, you, what do we do? You, you do the assessment and you've done the assessment and, and how are we going to change the course? Can we change the course? And Randy, you've often said, um, you know, that time is the enemy. And what does that really mean on these cases? So let's spend a few minutes talking about estrangement and then let's talk about what do we do? Right. Well, I'm going to just go back like I did earlier just to say another tactic for an alienator is, is, is either false allegations or exaggerated allegations of parental you know, problems, unfitness. And so when we move into talking about estrangement, we're talking about legitimate child abuse, domestic violence, and those kinds of situations. One of the biggest weapons that an alienator can use because everyone wants to make sure children are safe. We all want to live in a world and in communities where children are safe. So when someone makes an allegation of child sexual abuse or physical abuse, we are going to take that seriously. We have a right, we have to as professionals, turn that into CPS, and then CPS has this in, you know, thorough investigation process that can take how long? Months. Months, months. right? Yeah. Okay, so let's just say, for instance, that that's an alienation case. So you got months of a parent not having perhaps any access to the child while the investigation is happening. So they, they're marinating in this alienation, and then it gets unsubstantiated, and now we've got to try to figure out how to reintegrate the parent back into that child's life. 
So that would be an example of another tactic would be false or exaggerated allegations that get investigated and they turn out to be not true. When it comes to estrangement, we oftentimes will see substantiated CPS investigations where there is a bruise or emotional abuse happening and CPS does substantiate it or domestic violence where there's this long history that collaterals can tell us about, family members, um, people in faith communities, neighbors can talk about. There it, are police reports, police that, reports that back it up. The police get called to the house. Uh, a, right. per, a parent might uh, visit a medical facility for, for some right. form of treatment and have that documented. Right. And then what happens is that how it gets confusing is that the victim of domestic violence starts developing symptoms from the years of abuse. And then they start trying to protect the children from the abuser. And then the say, the in this case, it is a batterer, it is an abuser, a coercive controller. He will use um, prelination as a defense against right. yeah. the fact that, no, it's an estrangement case and there is abuse going on, but he's going to try to get the courts to think that that the parent that's trying to protect the children is inappropriately blocking, obstructing the children rather than protecting. And there lies why these cases are so complicated because as a judge, you're hearing attorneys argue both sides yep. and you're like, what is going on here? Right. And so then that's how we get involved oftentimes as evaluators trying to tease it apart. And it's got to be so hard to figure out where the truth really lies. I mean, you don't you don't know. I mean, you might start the case thinking one way and you get into it months later and you're thinking a different way and seeing uh, different things and that's what makes them so complicated. And the general public doesn't really have room for us to say, okay, well, it was this way at the beginning and now it's kind of changed this way because there's no science to this. I mean, it's it's really a function of human relationships and how people interact with each other and us trying to figure it out. Um, so what do you do once you figure out you, you have this phenomena and you've done your evaluation? I mean, what are some common recommendations that you make to people going through this situation? How do you deal with the kids? How do you deal with the favored parent? How do you deal with the rejected parent? Because the rejected parent is always, from the cases we have, always so angry and so... Um, uh, just doesn't like the judicial system at all because the judicial system hasn't helped him or her and it's it, nobody believes them and you know they're making up all these excuses. So how do you guys deal with that once you've sort of figured out what's going on in the case? Then what do you do? It, it always depends on what we find in our evaluations. So if it's an estrangement case, we'll look at at. Uh, at these options for treatment. An alienation case, we're going to look at different options. And if it's a hybrid case, we'll look at both. Hi hybrid case meaning a combination of both of, of them. Of both estrangement and yeah. alienation. How often do you see those kinds of cases where it's a, a hybrid and a combination? Actually, I mean, again, it's never hybrid, not like 50-50, but <clears throat> a lot of times you'll see it like dividing up 75-25, 80-20, Occasionally, you have a slam dunk. It's estrangement, alienation. But, but oftentimes, for example, like a rejected parent responds poorly to the rejection. 
And then he or she starts being the kind of neglectful, abusive parent in the process because they start personalizing the children's rejection and, and refusal. And again, as a parent myself, the, I can understand how incredibly stressful and agonizing it is to have a child who you had this relationship with now saying they want nothing to do with you. But as a parent, you have to rise above what's going on and still love them unconditionally because if you get reactive to that, then you start contributing to the process, especially if you go into see mental health professionals and your first presentation to them is this angry, angry person. And now you start playing in to the portrayal that you're this angry Yep. abusive right. mother or father yep. because you're now in that moment angry and irritable and defensive. Right. So yeah. very reactive and <clears throat> it becomes that self-fulfilling Yes. Prophecy. Yeah, and part of that's because the process has been going on so much in the court system and they're in and out of court all yep. the time and you see those cases where you know that that's what's going on. So um, let's sort of go back and talk a little bit more about, okay, now now what do we do? I mean, if, if it's a hybrid or if it's one or the other, I mean, how do we get the family working toward healing and can we? I mean, there's some cases we just can't fix. Right. I think there's multiple services. And again, sometimes families get, we write evaluation recommendations and sometimes we got, you can do this, you can do this, you can do this. And again, all time consuming, you know, cost money. But sometimes if you identify a parent that has a fitness problem, whether it's they have domestic violence, substance abuse, mental health issues, you recommend individual counseling for that parent with this idea that we're trying to rehab them. And or or the, a domestic violence domestic group, violence, a men's yeah, group. A battery intervention group for a person who struggles with domestic violence. You can, you can request or order um, parent, parent coordination, which is a service for divorcing parents who are trying to learn how to co-parent effectively. And that parent coordinator can get into the dynamics and work it through before they go to court. And then there's parent-child reunification counseling. When a parent, the children are refusing, then you get a reunification counselor who helps facilitate and repair that relationship, watch for safety issues if there's a reoccurrence of um, poor parenting and they can address it in, in the moment but working toward reunifying and repairing that that relationship. When you're doing that reunification process, who do you guys really view as your client? Is it the kids? Is it everybody? Is it the whole family? Is it one parent? Is it the other parent? I mean, because that, you know, when you're going to talk therapy and you have your counselor, then you know who your client is. But then when you start engaging with the whole family, then what? Who Who's the client then? It, the model that that I've been using, uh, I see the the family. As, as my client. I'm not working with just the child or just the rejected parent. I'm working with everybody. So in one session, I might see just the child or I might see just the rejected or favored parent. But the next time, uh, I might see the parents together or a parent and child together or everybody in varying combinations as uh, the case progresses. And judicial oversight is very important it's in critical. those cases yeah. because that way if a parent is is uh, up to their old shenanigans that created the uh, separation problem then you can have the um, attorney go to the court and you know contempt of court can be a part of that and again parents will oftentimes get a they'll do what they can get away with and once professionals in the court start holding them accountable the vast majority of them stop 
unless right. you have that pathogenic parent who's got severe mental health problems, they remain delusional and they'll continue to act out despite the consequences. Yeah, that accountability is really important in the, in the therapy that you guys are doing after you've had that assessment. Well, and yeah. what's the result if there's no intervention? I mean, we talk about the investment and this is a big investment, but what's the result for a kid who grows up in this environment and there's no intervention, there's no court intervention and nothing happens? What, what does that child look like as an adult? Well, uh, first, we look at biological parents generally as providing the greatest sources of social capital for children. Social capital referring to the psychological and social resources that uh, a, a child grows up with and uh, develops over time. So if a child is denied access to a good parent or a good enough parent, then they're denied access to the, that social capital. So they grow up without that, and it, that has long-term consequences. Right. And just the uh, psychological impact when you're allowed a child to, to have their cognitive thinking crystallized in this black and white polarized view, they end up actually having problems later on in their relationships where they end up becoming you know black and white and polarized in their thinking so one day their their friends the greatest friend in the world and they start experiencing tension and stress and problems in that relationship and the only thing they know how to do is now make that friend a bad bad friend and so how they are experiencing managing stress in their family of origin then gets transferred into their subsequent relationships with friends and then future intimate partners. And there's been research to kind of follow those kind of problems. So there's long-term impact on children. What are some of the biggest mistakes that you see mental health professionals making in these types of cases? The biggest, and we talk about this regularly, is that they don't consider that there might be multiple hypotheses. They don't consider that abuse and alienation are both real things. And they, they go into it thinking that the only option is that this child has been abused or that alienation is right. the cause. And on one hand, we risk exposing children to a potentially abusive parent, and, and nobody wants to do that. And on the other hand, we run the risk of denying children access to a good or good enough parent, and they both have risks associated with them. And I think mental health counselors, is a big mistake we see, and I'm sure you guys see it oftentimes too, is the infamous letter that's written oh, yeah. by a therapist who's yep. seeing the children, who's hired by mom or who's hired by dad, who's never, ever met the other parent, and will write a scathing letter saying the children should not have access to this abusive parent they've never met. And so they again get the children's signs and symptoms contextualized from one parent and then they write this letter and most good judges and good attorneys like you guys will bring those letters to the judges and say that we need to just, what do you call it? Just discard it or, or yeah, expunge it or whatever. It needs to not be written. So mental health professionals, again, from good intentions, but lack of right. training and, and it's hopefully going to become increasingly unethical and maybe some malpractice will have to happen before we start training them at educational levels right. to not write those letters. Yeah, yeah um, exactly. So 
yeah, so, that's why I think it's so imperative on these kinds of really high conflict cases that we have people like you guys who are trained in this area involved because every once in a while I'll have an attorney that doesn't really uh, deal with a lot of these types of issues that will suggest somebody to me that I don't even know who they are because they're the counselor down the street and they've known them and think that they're going to do an okay job and that's just not what happens in these kinds of cases. And, you know, and then sometimes too we hear, oh, you know, well, we can't send the whole case and the whole family over to Ben and Amy and Randy, because, you know, Amy might be doing uh, from your office parenting time coordination and you might be doing reunification and Ben might be doing, um, you know, the evaluation itself. Um, all for the same family. All for the same family, which I think is critical. And I don't know why some judges and some lawyers uh, are threatened by that. But in my world, having you guys all in one spot and to be able to collaborate and cross talk about issues that you see really enhance the process rather than diminishing it because you're in the same building and can meet and talk about the file. So I, I guess I would like for you guys to speak a little bit about that so that you can sort of diminish that concept in the minds of some lawyers, you know, that that's a bad thing when we see it as a, as a very positive thing. In, in a medical model, we see that as a, as advantageous when you get specialists, you know, you send someone to a Mayo Clinic or Cleveland Clinic or whatever because you have all these multiple specialists who are working with the patient from various expertise, various roles professionally, and they touch the case, touch the family, touch the symptoms, and then they can have access to each other to talk, challenge each other, have competing theories in the room together to try to get the best outcome. That's what we have when, at Fountain Hill. We we are we love to argue with each other. Yes, we, you do. We, oh, I can we, attest to that. Uh, <laughs> yeah. We challenge each other, but it's the ability to be in the same building and have meetings where we can where we can talk about a case and challenge each other. If we have some psychologist from a across the, the across town, it doesn't mean that I'm going to challenge them because they're they're not in the same building. It's just that we got to find time to talk, which right. is more difficult. It's but really we tough. still have the same challenges. When you have a parent coordinator who's on the west side of town and you got an evaluators on the north side of town, we're still colleagues in the mental health community trying to work on a case. So the fact that we're in one building just makes it more convenient to compete with each other and challenge each other. Right, yeah. And I, and I think that that's sort of a, uh, a concept that a lot of lawyers and some judges don't understand. And so I think it's good that you um, well, speak to because, that too. Because that's different than with attorneys. You know, you know if you represent somebody, then nobody else in your firm can represent the opposite exactly. uh, yeah. party. Um, it, it's different in, yeah. in mental health. What do you guys, um, and I'd like for you to talk just a little bit about the intensive, you know, sometimes you see the reunification that you guys are doing, but then you also, we also see these petitions to send families away, whether it's to do an intensive at Fountain Hill, which I've been a part of for a couple of days. And um, so talk a little bit about the intensive and, and, and what's the deal with this equine therapy? Let's yeah. talk a little <laughs> bit about that too. Well, we are, Ben and I are not riding horses much lately, but we, we, um, there is equine therapy. Basically, it's experiential um, therapy. Any form of experiential doesn't have to be equine. In some of these cases, you have to bypass the narrative, bypass the cognitions because talk therapy doesn't work because they've been, as we talk about, I use the metaphor of marinating and, and something for, for too long. So you get them out of the narrative and you get them back into experiencing the relationship and you use equine therapy as a medium 
for them to begin to interact with each other and, and try to resolve, you know, tasks in the, in the stables together and just be together kind of in their physicality and try to experience things without having to talk about the problem. And sometimes that can be a medium or a way to, to intervene and try to make progress better than just meeting in an office once once a week for an hour. So then we can do intensives for a half day, full day, and, and we've done them as long as five intensive days in a row. They end up staying in a motels or a cabin if they're out of town, and then they come to the stables for the day, and we do a variety of things. There. Yeah, the equine therapy is not anything that's new. It's just new to our world in right. terms of um, the parental alienation issues. I mean, it's been used for years for domestic abuse in child children who are, you know, uh, been abused by their parents, or even for special needs kids. It, it, absolutely, yeah. it's been around forever, but it's now being applied here. Right. Yeah. Uh, what do you think about the out-of-state intensives? I mean, are you um, have you had anybody go to one of those yet? I mean, we we hear about them, and people file petitions for them, but they're also extremely expensive. You know, you're looking at probably forty, fifty, sixty thousand dollars to be sending a family out of state to one of those intensive. What do What do you guys think about those? It, it well, what's the success rate? It, yeah, cost is prohibitive uh, for most people with those. Um, there have been a lot of times where I've recommended those uh, because in severe cases, we're, you know, we're running out of options that work. And I can't guarantee that that intensive is going to work or that that process will work. But in terms of what's left to try, that might be the only thing. Right. Right. There's been some outcome studies, um, limited. They limited. Had replication studies, but some outcome studies show that some of some families do benefit from those intensives. So, I mean, again, when we talk about long-term consequences and families with means, that can be a, a, a viable option for some families. Well, it's probably going to be really interesting too at some point to see what these kids are like after they've gone through it and look back on it, um, because it does really seem to be uh, a big part of the of uh, the domestic um, docket. I mean, we were right. seeing a lot of these kinds of cases, which leads us into the the yeah. court system. And you know, what can lawyers and the courts and judges do better to aid in this process? And and what do you see as the failures of the court system? Early intervention is is important. Uh, we can try and head these families off earlier on. Uh, getting evaluations when when needed, and then following up with accountability. Uh, having reasonable access to the judge, if, if consequences are needed for one parent or the other not following through uh, or, or violating the order, then, you know, we need rapid access to the judge to, uh, to mitigate that. Um, and, you know, one judge for the family. Yeah, which is what we've really uh, started to do here in Michigan. And it seems to me that the court order outlining what it is that you guys are going to be doing is really important to give you the access to the collateral data, 
timelines when it needs to be done, uh, making sure your bills get paid, because I always find that as soon as I issue a report, even as a guardian ad litem, then automatically the other parent's mad. And, you know, you run into issues with compliance uh, at that stage too. But Randy, can you think of any other things that maybe the court system or the, or are we as lawyers, how can we better help our clients other than trying to educate them and as Ben suggested, <clears throat> get them in the process as quickly as possible? I think that, you know, we're, I like working with attorneys, like after an evaluation, um, getting the attorneys in my office and to communicate my findings to to both attorneys with the hope that with those findings, the attorneys can figure out a way to resolve the case without litigation. Um, and if litigation needs to happen, it needs to happen. But oftentimes, if we can case conference um, and talk about the case, um, then the attorneys can, you know, work with the with the clients and say, here here's the findings, and so let's just work at trying to implement them and re and repair. The other thing that I would mention is that we we working on a case now with your guys when when child protective services does get involved, and there are allegations. And it, they are unsubstantiated. It seems like the courts oftentimes don't use that as evidence to try to move in, saying, "Okay, maybe we're working. We're looking at an alienation case." Um, and I think that they tend to be quicker because it's again they understand the concreteness of estrangement abuse cases. If it's a substantiation and all the allegations are being proved by collaterals, by the testing and everything, I think the courts are they know how to move on those cases. In the other cases, they, they tend not to know what to do and they tend to drag their feet more. And I think, again, time is the enemy in those cases. And then, and then the children end up losing that social capital. Yeah, well, it's clearly a complex uh, area and we don't always have the answers and we try to make conclusions based on the data that we've seen. So I want to thank you guys for joining us today. And uh, those listening can locate uh, Ben and Randy at Fountain Hill, either through their website or through their emails on there. So thank you both for coming. And this has been great yeah. uh, information for everyone. Yeah, FountainHillCenter.com is where you can find Ben and I. And then if you're looking for specialized services for men, and, and Connie wants me to talk about the fact that I have some books available, but that's um, yes. MensCenter.org. Uh, MensCenter.org is where some specialized services for men are available as well. Well, thank you guys a lot. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. Thanks for the opportunity. Thank you for listening to this episode of our Thacker Slate podcast. If you have additional questions, do not hesitate to contact us at 616-888-3810 or visit our website, thackerslate.com, for additional information. 